0: Batty lead-off on a Wednesday afternoon. It's been a minute. You know him. You love him. The great OC. Sean O'Connell on the drive on a Wednesday. Sean, happy Wednesday, buddy. How are you?
1: Happy hump day to you. I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm good. I appreciate the time. All right, let's start off with the text I just sent you uh, because I just finished this documentary on Showtime called Catching Lightning, and I had zero idea that this was even a thing. It's involving a former MMA Uh, really from what I, and this is why I want your opinion, from what I saw, a very promising young fighter, Lightning Lee Murray from the UK. And then the story just takes like 17 different non-sequiturs and hard left-hand turns where this guy got stabbed in a brawl. He killed a guy during a road rage incident. He had a family. And then he uh, is thought to be allegedly the front man of a group, a, a gang in London that's responsible for literally the biggest cash heist in the history of the world. Like, you you know, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say, Sean, but I know you're familiar with this story. Uh, I don't really even have a question. I just kind of wanted to talk to you about Lee Murray and your recollection of this whole story. Yeah,
1: no, it's uh, it's well known in the MMA circles, and, and he's kind of one of the shoulda, coulda, woulda guys, the what-if stories. From the uh, the golden age of MMA when like, you know, Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell were fighting and squaring off like Lee Murray was this up and coming Brit with crazy fast hands. And people thought that he could have been, you know, maybe even a, a UFC champion, someone who would have been like a, a world level superstar in MMA. But he was like a lot of fighters um, still now, but especially back in the day. Right. He was from like a really rough background and. Uh, got caught up in allegedly got caught up in organized crime very early in his life and in his career and uh ended up you know going down this path where he's he's serving twenty five years in prison because he was like you said the mastermind um he's behind a a securitas cash depot heist he took like <clears throat> what was it like seventy million dollars it was obviously in pounds because they were over in England but just like an insane amount and it was like you know he, he had a really brutal life he, he did train over here in the states for a while he fought on cards with my own coach Jeremy Horn so I've uh, I've been aware of Lee Murray for a long time I never met the guy but um, people talk about him as you know one of these kind of like fascinating characters from a fascinating time in mixed martial arts
0: And to your point, I mean, you know, because initially when I kind of read the synopsis, I'm like, all right, well, if a guy is desperate enough to go rob a, it was a a depot, it wasn't a bank, it was a depot where they held notes for the Bank of England and other banks. If a guy's that desperate, he must not have been able to fight. Uh, But boy, was I wrong. Like, you know, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about who he was as a fighter. And then attending to it, one of the, I thought, coolest anecdotes or stories was what happened between Lee Murray and Tito Ortiz outside of a London bar. (laughs) You know, like, you you can't even make make it up. So to your point, like, this was during, like, and and for me, this is UFC heyday. Tito and Chuck Liddell, you know, that's when I first started watching it. I had friends who were way into it. So Liddell was in the documentary. Matt Hughes as well. And Matt wrote a book. Um, So apparently there was this massive UFC, you know, MMA event in London and, you know, they were all at the bar, they're all drinking, and, you know, suddenly uh, a few dozen of the best fighters in the world, lubed up and drunk, are suddenly spilled out onto the street in London, <laughs> and they all just start fighting. And it kind of culminates yeah. with this Lee Murray, Tito Ortiz thing, and witnesses claim that, you know, that Tito came and squared up to Lee, and Lee completely whacks LaFleur with him, and they, he had to be pulled off, Sean, because he was kicking Tito in the head with his boots, uh, like you can't make this stuff up. What what are some of the conversations you've heard in the community about this night that was featured in this documentary?
1: So, so this is one of those nights where people who were not there, but you can't verify that they weren't there, will tell you that they were there. I because see because it's that legendary of a story. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's like it's one of the moments in like the apocryphal kind of foundation type pieces of uh, the culture of mixed martial arts. And, you know, guys like Rampage Jackson and, and as you mentioned, Chuck Liddell and uh, Boz Rootin and all these individuals were, like, you know, just biting down and swinging. Nobody has gloves. Nobody has mouthpieces. But these are, as you mentioned, like the best fighters in the world all gathered in one place. Because back then, that's, the you know, the UFC and Pride and all these, they they were, like, first of all, the the talent pool was incredibly concentrated, right? And you didn't have events every weekend like you do now. So, like, when an event happened, a big event happened, everyone was there either to fight or to coach or to corner and then went to the after party. And, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of stories about people getting knocked out and evacuating their bowels and Lee Murray knocking out Tito Ortiz and Tito would be dead if it wasn't for people stepping in on his behalf because Lee Murray was that crazy of a guy. And all this stuff. So, I mean, it's one of those things where there's no footage of it. Um, you could do a 30 for 30 on that night alone, probably because there are so many characters in MMA who were there, who were part of the fight. And if they weren't part of the fight, helped break up the fight, you know, bouncers at this club were, were fighting guys, not really knowing what they were getting themselves into, not really appreciating that the fact that, you know, you're this six foot four, Two hundred and fifty pound bouncer in England, and the guy standing in front of you is only one hundred eighty pounds, but he's the baddest man on the planet. Like that kind of stuff was happening that night, and uh, I wasn't there, obviously. But uh, there are stories that probably still haven't been told, and we would we'd love to hear them.
0: So I, I wonder one more thing here, then we'll move on. What what sort of fighter? Because they they draw the parallel. They say he was like Conor McGregor before Conor McGregor, because he really knew how to promote himself. You know, he walked in as Hannibal Lecter into one fight, and nobody knew he was doing it. It was like his idea. Um, So, like, what sort of fighter-slash-character could we have seen from Lee Murray if all of the chaos didn't go down in his life? So,
1: that's an interesting question, because he was obviously incredibly talented, but If you look at um, his record and if you talk to the guys that were around him, he was one of those individuals that, like, in the gym and in certain settings was incredibly formidable. and, you know, an intimidating character, scary, a little bit unhinged. But he only had two professional losses, and and those were both guys whose names you know, right? Like, Anderson Silva beat him, and uh, a guy named Joe Dirksen, who's a highly respected Canadian veteran, Beat him and then a lot of the guys that he beat with the exception of like Jorge Rivera in the UFC, he never really beat anyone of note. So maybe he was a guy who is better left as like a legend, better left as a what if story. And maybe he was a guy that if he had given himself the opportunity to truly develop would have ended up, you know, being good enough, getting better, getting more skilled, rounding out his skill set to where he could beat. Um, you know, the names, but I don't really know. And nobody does because there are dozens of these individuals where you walk into a prominent MMA gym and there's a dude in there who's just waxing the floor with guys that you will know are like UFC championship competitors that are PFL stalwarts, whatever, but you don't know that guy's name. And you're like, who is that? And someone tells you a story. Oh, he's this Brazilian jujitsu black belt. He's unbelievable. When he's in here, he kills everybody. But then he gets into real fights. He gets into professional contests, and he just doesn't have the mentality necessary. Or he, you know, he, he withers under the pressure or whatever it is. We don't really know what Lee Murray would have been. All we have is the, the evidence in front of us that when he was tested by guys who were like legit, bona fide, long-time like, world-level fighters, those are the only people he lost to.
0: But he beat everyone else. You know, actually, I wanted to ask you one more thing, because I was really impressed with uh, Pat Militich, who was a big part of this documentary. Uh, every single episode, he was one of, like, three or four guys who was interviewed throughout the entire time, and he was one of Lee's early coaches. And I know that he's mm-hmm. very well-respected, right, in UFC circles. What What do you know about Pat Miletic? I
1: mean, Pat Miletic is, you can make an argument, Pat Miletic is, like, the... Um, the starting point of my own fight lineage, hmm. because Militich Fighting Systems is where um, Matt Hughes and Robbie Lawler and Rich Franklin and Jeremy Horn and Joe Dirksen and Mike Chesnilovich and all these guys sort of uh, gathered and started out in Davenport, Iowa, and really gave birth to the American mixed martial arts scene. So Pat Militich is certainly a pioneer. He was a UFC champion at one point. Um, and, you know, Jeremy was his right hand man. Jeremy was the guy who taught the jujitsu program at Militich Fighting Systems. So like, I mean, I've met Pat several times. I've been around Pat a lot. He's, he's one of the grandfathers, so to speak, of mixed martial arts. You know, everyone talks about the Gracie's and everyone talks about, um, you know, some of the big names over in Japan, Hiko Yoshida and, and those types. But as far as American mixed martial arts, Pat Miletic was like the first on a curve along with, uh, you know, the Shamrocks and, and Dan Severn and those types of guys.
0: Interesting. Yeah. When, when a guy has hands like Christmas hams and ears that look like cauliflowers, just leave him be, let him go, you know, like walk away. It was, it was really phenomenal for any of our listeners that are interested. It's a bizarre story. You will not see all the left-hand turns. It's called Catching Lightning. It's out on Showtime now. All right, Sean, we can move on. Um, BetOnline.ag released uh, over-under win totals for P5 teams. Uh, so we'll start with BYU. And I've been saying anything north of six wins first year of the Big 12 I think is an absolute great achievement. And that's exactly what the line is, six wins for BYU during their first uh, Big 12 foray. What do you make of that, that over-under?
1: Uh, you know, I think I would hit the over on that because this, we're not talking about you have to win six Big 12 games here. They're gonna they're gonna absolutely beat Sam Houston State. They're gonna absolutely beat Southern Utah. Uh, Arkansas is obviously a tough out. They're gonna beat Kansas. Cincinnati's tough. TCU's tough. I think Texas Tech is gonna be really really good this year. Um, But that means you you really if if you beat Kansas, Southern Utah, and Sam Houston, you got to find three other wins on BYU's schedule. And I think they're there. Uh, You know, I think that you can beat a team like West Virginia, certainly. I think you can beat Iowa State. BYU does it every year where they beat someone who people don't expect them to. And whether that's Texas, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma State, I think they get it done. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that BYU, I guess it's a push if you're, right? They should set these lines at five and a half or six and a half. So at least a push. And I'd probably still be willing to take the over.
0: Now, on the Utah side, uh, let's see, 8.5 was the total. And we did this exercise yesterday. And, look, it's this is called Sports Talk Radio in May because we have no idea what a lot of these teams are going to look like. I mean, we still have a couple of windows uh, open for potential both additions and subtractions. Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty tough to find 10, but I think you can find 9 when you look at it. Uh, but what do you make of that number, 8.5 Utah football over under win total?
1: Uh, yeah, look, nine is hard. Uh, I know that we should be optimistic. And for me, the, the prediction is all predicated on Cam Rising's availability or lack thereof. Yep. I have no reason to dis- disbelieve in the ability uh, of Brandon Rose, but I know, I'm positive, that with Cam Rising at the helm, Utah's in its best position offensively, right? And if you're talking about Cam Rising as two full weeks of camp, is 100% good to go against Florida and Baylor, I think worst-case scenario, you split those games. Potentially, you win both of them. If Cam Rising is not available to you and a player's first-ever collegiate start is going to be against Florida, yes, it's at home, yes, that's a friendly environment, but that's a massive game against really talented, fast players. So it's asking a lot for someone to potentially, and I shouldn't assume, that Bryson Barnes wouldn't battle back and get the start there, I guess. But right now, what we know is that, you know, Kyle Whittingham has told us Brandon Rose is like right now the guy behind Cam Rising. So my hope is that everything goes perfectly for Cam. We've talked about this before. The rehab is clean. Uh, there's no tweaks or injuries or anything like that, that he's, he's able to to be more than available on like day one of the season. You got to be available a couple of weeks before so you get your timing down with the receivers, any new players in that huddle, know exactly your communication style. They know everything that they need to know about what it's like to be on the field with cam rising, because you're not going to beat Florida and Baylor and you might not beat Florida or Baylor if you're not really dialed in. So, so that for me is like the big question is cam rising starting Ten of Utah's games at the very least. If the answer to that is yes, then I think we can find easily eight wins, probably nine. If Cam Rising isn't available until UCLA, that that, that makes me a little bit more cautious with a uh, predicting on a win total.
0: Based off of your experience as a high level athlete, um, you know Cam can't be ready to go on the thirtieth, the day before the game. So, like, how how long is preferable? for Cameron to be cleared for full contact prior to the day of game that should breed confidence for everybody that, yes, he's ready to go mentally, physically, all the things. How, how long does he need before kick?
1: I think that if he is cleared before fall camp, right, meaning the doctor says he's full go. There's no restrictions on this leg. He can do what he has to do. Now the coaching staff takes the onus upon themselves and says, "Well, we're not going to we're not going to put him in a bad situation. We're not going to we're not going to hurt him. We're not going to let people fall around his legs. We're not going to make him do anything. But if you're going into camp and you're still waiting for doctors checkups to tell you one way or another if Cam Rising is physically capable of being full go, that's a bad deal. You're only going to actually give him a week or two of live reps. That's all he needs. But if you're wondering at the start of fall camp, you know, even to be able to, and that's scary for me. So an ideal world cam rising end of summer, like everyone else has done with their conditioning workouts. They go home for a week. That's when cam rising gets released by the doctor and the doctor says, you're good to go. And then it's on the coaches and the coaches will say, all right, we're going to ease you in slowly. But I, even I say this, I feel like it's, overly optimistic to expect that. So when you're hoping
0: and you're wishing for a player that important to be available to you, it's scary. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because there's just so much at stake and attendant to it, I'll follow up with one thing. Where's the, where's the danger zone where Kyle and Andy need to start talking about contingencies? If is it okay, so let's just hypothetically speaking, if fall camp opens and cam isn't cleared for full contact, and then we kind of inch closer and closer to the fall, at what point do they have a conversation about, okay, we might need to look at Bryson or Brandon uh, for week one or week two? Like, wh- where is that, just generally speaking, Sean, where does that danger zone exist?
1: Well, it's minimum of, you know, 10 days. If you talk to the coaches up there, the players who've been through the program, week one, right, you, you start camp, and it's really kind of like a obnoxious four-week process, but, you start your game prep two weeks out because you have the extra two weeks, right? And, and for Cam Rising, you because he's so experienced, because he's got such chemistry with his offensive coordinator, because he's so established as a leader on this team, if, let's say, you know, you've got full game week, obviously he needs to be okay that week, and ideally the week before also, which is when you start install of game plan for Florida, ideally he's there. Because if he's not, and if he's not ready or if he's limited in some way, you got to remember you're playing Florida. And there are 85 other scholarship guys on this team, I guess 84 other scholarship guys on this team, who are looking to you and saying, you have to put us in the best position to win. We all love Cam. We all think that Cam is the right option here. But if he's not healthy, we need to be doing all the repping, all the installing, all the establishing of timeline, all the establishing of timing, with who, the guy who's actually going to be taking the snaps. It can't be a scenario like it was in Corvallis this past season where half an hour before game time, Cam walks up to Coach Witt and says, I actually can't go. You've got to let Bryson Barnes play. You can't do that when you're starting the season with Florida. If it was Weber State in week one, we'd be having a different conversation. But it's not. It's the Gators.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to give me your pick for the Pac-12 champion in May, Sean, because as I referenced, there's so many things that will manifest themselves in August that we just have no idea. So here's how I'm going to phrase it. How many teams can you make a compelling case in the Pac-12 this year that can actually go win the whole thing, and who are those teams and why? I mean, it's a minimum of five, and it might be six.
1: Yeah. And I don't put I don't put Colorado in that conversation, even though some other people do, which is absolutely insane, right? But USC was a couple plays away last year. Their roster is arguably better than it was. So USC has to be the leader in the clubhouse, or at least among the leaders in the clubhouse. Oregon, same scenario. Oregon has one of the most dynamic and experienced quarterbacks in the conference and in the country coming back. They've got a bunch of four- and five-star talents that are now growing into themselves and growing into their role on this team because they've recruited so incredibly well these last few years. Oregon will always be in this conversation, barring anything crazy for the next, you know, 10 years plus. Washington, I think, is my leader in the clubhouse right now, because Washington was like a bad bounce away from being the champion in the Pac-12 and maybe even a playoff team last year in Kalen DeBoer's first season. So what are they going to be this year? If they can get their defensive backfield dialed in, which was, at one point, the staple and the most important part of a Washington football roster, like, they're going to be very scary. That, that to me, that wide receiving core and that quarterback is a combination. That, to me, is the scariest thing in the Pac-12 conference right now. And that Oregon State is University of Utah light, right? They've got DJ Uyunglele, and I think you and I have talked about this before. He doesn't have to be anything special. He doesn't have to be better than he was at Clemson if he is just as good as he was at Clemson and they get similar production out of their defense, out of their running game, they will be in the conversation. They will be an eight plus win team. They will be a team that can spoil things for everyone else and maybe everything breaks right being a conference championship game themselves. Obviously we've already talked about Utah being there. And then, you know, people are like writing off UCLA because they lost their five year starter in DTR but that's a little counterintuitive for me because we spent so much time telling you that DTR was not great. And like, he's not a reason why they're going to win a a championship. Well, they got one of the top quarterbacks, top quarterback recruits in the country coming in, who's penciled in to be the starter in most people's minds. And we have seen true freshman quarterbacks with talented rosters around them, push for conference championships, push for college football, playoff inclusion and things like that, that the past. so, I put UCLA as kind of like the five B option, but we might have six teams in the race.
0: All right, buddy. Before I say you lose, since it's been a couple of weeks, um, if we had more time, we'd go down the list and talk about every local prospect that was drafted. But in the in the, for the sake of time, I'll ask you about uh, your thoughts on Dalton to Buffalo and then Clark to Atlanta. We had to wait a little bit for Clark, but he was off was off the board, and he he will be a Falcon and. Obviously, Dalton first-round pick to Buffalo. Your thoughts on those two before we say you lose for a Wednesday?
1: Well, I know it would have been better for Dalton Kincaid to go, like, 12 or 15 because of the signing bonus and the the money up front and all that kind of thing. But when you think of him as a pass catcher now with, you know, potentially aligned for who knows how many years with one of the best young quarterbacks in football, with a roster that's pretty dang complete – Uh, Where he's not the only dynamic weapon on the offense. So, things, you know, defenses will be kept honest, and we, we, we know what happens when he's allowed to work. Like, aside from having to live in Buffalo and play in six feet of snow, you can't ask for a much better situation than landing on an AFC contender as a rookie and landing on an AFC contender who's been hungry for a pass catching tight end. They've had Dawson Knox, who's serviceable, but he's nowhere near the pass catching threat that Dalton Kincaid is. So great for him, great for the Bills. Excellent pick. And then look, Clark Clark Phillips with a huge chip on his shoulder because people let him slide down the boards. That's <laughs> that's going to be fun to watch. Because that's a guy who's got incredible football IQ. That's a guy who's got incredible work ethic. And now he's extra motivated. Yes, I know he ran a four or five. We've all seen how fast Clark Phillips plays. He's going to be just fine. Now, there are limitations because of his size. He he doesn't really match up all that well with the D.K. Metcalfs of the NFL. But that is a dude who's going to be on NFL rosters for 12 years. I'm not worried about Clark Phillips at all.
0: All right, my guy. Appreciate the time. Been too long. Hope you're well. Watch that doc and then let me know your thoughts. I thought it was really good. Thanks, Sean. Be good, okay?
1: All right. Thanks for having me. All
0: right. There he is. Sean O'Connell Yeah, does some play-by-play for the PFL. Uh, former pro fighter, former college football player. You guys know Sean. Get him on Twitter, at RealOC Sports is where you find him.